Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Heavenly Father, we are always at need for prayer. We're always at need for your word. And there's nothing that often reminds us of that, uh, like difficulties in the world, hardships in this life, um, uncertainty, seeming confusion, uh, and unknown. But it's actually in us encountering the limitations of our bodies, the limitations of our knowledge, and the limitations of our power that you call us to look upon you, who is enthroned in heaven in triune glory, uh, simple, infinite, unlimited, omniscient, and all-powerful. So Lord, we pray that we encounter that God in scripture today and are so encouraged to that end. We pray this in your name. Amen. In 1932, a reporter named Joe Williams crafted a headline. I was a journalism student, so I've learned to appreciate good headlines, and this is one that kind of has stood the test of time in the sports journalism industry. The caption simply read, Ruth calls shot as he puts home run number two inside pocket. It was game three of the World Series in 1932. Uh, Some of you were there, maybe. Uh, And Babe Ruth's Yankees were playing the Chicago Cubs. Ruth was up to bat. The score was tied 4-4. Ruth had already recounted two strikes. For those who don't know, Jonathan, one more strike and you're out. Um, and, uh, And so the Cubs dugout was harassing him being down in the count, Um, but the iconic Lou Gehrig described it this way on the radio. He said, so what does he do? He stands up there and tells the world that he's going to sock that next one. And not only that, but he tells the world right where he's going to sock it, into the center field stands. A few seconds later, the ball was where he pointed, in the center field stands. He called his shot and then made it. I ask you, what can you do with a guy like that. And maybe you've been around baseball or you grew up in Little League and you saw some ambitious Little Leaguer step up to the plate and point his bat to the left center field sign, emulating what Babe Ruth did on that infamous day. Today, in the book of Luke, Jesus calls his shot. Though it's a horizon far past the outfield fence, it's a horizon of eternity itself. He's going to tell us of the glory which is to come. And the same question Garrick asks at Ruth's foretelling is the same question Luke asks all of us today. What can you do with a guy like that? And this is our last sermon in the book of Luke until the new year. Um, We're going to take a little break for the holidays uh, for the next month and a half. But this passage concludes a narrative uh, in Luke, which picks up in chapter 22 as Luke begins the passion sequence, the sequence uh, of Jesus' events of his death, burial, and resurrection. So we'll begin that in January. But our passage today finishes a sequence in Luke's book, a chapter, so to speak, that began back in chapter 19. And this recorded Jesus coming into Jerusalem, And we saw him encounter the temple and all this opposition. And so there's really just been this scene of Jesus in the temple answering questions. If you remember back to chapter 20, Jesus encountered a literal murderer's row of challenges. And so it's only fitting in God's glory that chapter 21 presents a literal murderer's row of challenges to the modern preacher. Uh, And for the skeptic, you might scoff that Jesus has such foresight and acuity to predict 
the end of all things. Maybe, if we look at 70 AD, we might say that he was, you know, right by happen chance. Or maybe you might say that biblical authors went and fudged the facts and made it look like Jesus knew what was going on. Because certainly one can't predict the future, let alone say that one man who died will come back in power and glory and the sky itself will split. That seems outrageous. For the Christian, you might feel that your life right now in the mundane day-to-day of what's going on is so far outside of God's plan that God's plan, though it is true, is of little relevance to you. But this text today places you and your life smack dab in the flow of God's plan, and you ought to be aware of that. Or many of us, we may want to squabble over the potential range of interpretations of this apocalyptic uh, visual language that Jesus is using here. But what Jesus wants to make clear is abundantly clear. And more than knowing about anything that's going on in the world, Jesus wants you to focus on what's going on in your heart. What can you do with a guy like that? Well, the Bible has been clear so far as we've been working through Luke. You listen to him. You believe him. You trust him. Christ will return, and you must be ready. That's our main point today. In all of its simplicity, Christ will return, and you must be ready. You may be paying attention, as Dean mentioned in his prayer, to what's going on in the world and wondering if there's any hope. But here we see the hope. Christ is coming. And we're going to see this in two parts today. First, in verses 20 through 33, Jesus is going to give us two case studies of hope and judgment. And then in verses 34 through 35, he's going to give us two commands for faithful endurance. So two case studies and two commands. And last week, Jesus predicted two things. He predicted the destruction of the temple, and he predicted the indestructible nature of the Lord's church. Remember that beautiful paradox where he says, many of you will die, but not a hair on your head will fail, where Jesus is upholding the resurrection life of those who have hope in him. This week, Jesus is going to speak more broadly about the events surrounding the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which is the total destruction of Jerusalem. But he's using it as almost like a trailer. When you go to a movie and you get that little feature trailer that tells you about something that's coming in the future, this event in 70 AD is a trailer for a greater film, a greater judgment, and a greater destruction that is going to come when Jesus comes back to judge the whole earth. And this is our first point today as we look at these two case studies of hope and judgment You see, for the disciples, as Jesus is teaching this, uh, we're probably somewhere around AD 30. Both of these events are future. Jesus is saying Jerusalem will be destroyed, and he's saying the Son of Man will come back. For us, the first case study seems to be history to us. If we look back on Rome's destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 AD, those are verifiable facts that seem to meet uh, almost to a T what Jesus is talking about here. But the second event, even to us, is still a future event, the second coming of Jesus Christ. But it's actually that uh, discrepancy of time between what did happen and has been verified and what will happen, that we get a unique hope and a profound weight regarding case study number two, the return of Jesus. But first, Jesus calls our attention to his first case study, which is the desolation of Jerusalem. And he introduces that by saying this. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And so here we see Jesus's consistent approach to 
the last things, the end times, what's often called eschatology. And it's simply this. When you know, you'll know. He says, don't spend much time discerning what's happening when the armies are getting near. He says, there'll be a day when the armies have surrounded you. You'll know when it's going to happen. When you're surrounded, know it's about to go down. The time is at hand. And it's recorded for us that the commander Titus, the Roman commander Titus, when he rolled rolled up to the walls of Jerusalem, he did so with more than 76,000 military personnel. To put that into modern context, that's more than the standing nation of countries like Canada, which is kind of a joke. But for another comparison, even for Australia, which is a little bit more relevant as a country, like this is, this is a huge force. Considering, sorry, Joy and Dana, you guys can talk to me later. Um, this, is, this is an astounding force considering that the population of Jerusalem is estimated to only be at most several hundred thousand people. 76,000 military troops Personnel coming to the gates of the city. Rome literally brought a gun to a knife fight. But Jesus prepared his disciple for this moment of overwhelming terror when he says this in verse 21. Then, when the city is surrounded, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. And so Jesus' care for us in scripture is generally consistent in two ways. One, He never gives us all that we want to know about any particular event. But two, he always gives us what we need to know about any particular event. For the Christian, in following Jesus, the way of obedience is always more parts faith in Jesus than it is faith in the details. Jesus holds the details. And as we see, they will become verifiable fact. And yet, our call to obey him is generally based on our faith in Jesus and what he is going to do in his time. And here, when they probably would like to know more, Jesus gives them the facts. When you're surrounded, when it seems the end is near, flee. Don't go back. Get out of the city. Don't stand and fight. Don't make excuses. Leave. Josephus, the historian, tells us that those who stayed in Jerusalem uh, all eventually died. He said, many started dying before the siege even began as Titus so tightly sealed up Jerusalem that the famine began to cause people to die. He said, the streets were full of those who were dead and those who were still alive wandered about the marketplaces like shadows. It was too late. But history also shows us that there were those who knew, heard, and obeyed Jesus' command. Thousands of Jews when they saw the city surrounded, fled to the city of Pella, this refuge, and they were safe. They incurred no harm. For the Christian, the words of Jesus are always our safest place of escape. And Jesus here gives his people a way to escape, but he also makes it clear why this is happening. The same God who gives them their egress, their escape, is also the same God who is causing this judgment to fall. Look at this, verses 22 and 24. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so you'll notice here, 
that Jesus is tying these unknown future events to well-known past revelation. He's tying this to the fulfillment of God's word that was in the Old Testament, that this would be fulfilled. Palero, the same word he uses to talk about fulfilling of prophecy elsewhere in the Gospels. And regarding this judgment that existed in the Old Testament, uh, Paul quotes a passage of Isaiah, the prophet, where he says this. He says, destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. God was decreeing destruction of Jerusalem for the sake of his righteousness, that is, for justice, for holiness, for what is good and what is due. This judgment that was about to befall Jerusalem was the vindication of God's justice and his righteousness. He had called Israel out of slavery. He had saved them by his own grace and called them into fellowship with him. But the Jews, over time, rejected him. They worshiped other gods. All the things we just read about in Joshua that Katie read for us happened in real history. They claimed to worship Yahweh. They even had these external markings of faith. They had the law, they had the temple, they had Jerusalem, but they missed the heart of God's salvation. They missed the end to which God gave all those things and called them into deeper fellowship. Paul tells us what this massive strike was. Romans 9, 32 through 33, Paul says this, because they, that is Israel, did not pursue it. If you read in verse 31, that is salvation. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so first let's take caution of our own hearts. You're all here. If this were Jerusalem in the first century, you would have all come to temple. You would be hearing the law proclaimed. You would have the external markings of faith. But Paul holds up that if our hope is in the mere externals and we miss the heart of faith, faith in Jesus Christ, then we miss everything. Jesus himself says this. In fact, he quotes that same prophecy Paul quotes in Isaiah early on saying that he is the rock that these Jews are missing in Luke chapter 20. The law, the temple, the throne of David all pointed the Jews to Jesus, but they couldn't see it. They rejected him. This is the second time, if you've been with us in the book of Luke, that Jesus has predicted Jerusalem's judgment. The first time, he emphasizes this again in Luke 19.44, saying, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. To miss Jesus is to miss everything. And this judgment, this powerful judgment, if you look in history, scholars uh, like foam at the mouth over how big these stones were, that some are still left in Jerusalem that made up the wall and the temple. It was considered immovable, insurmountable. And yet Rome came and tore apart every last one of them. Josephus describes the ferocity which with the Romans did this. He said the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even to the ground by those that dug it up to the foundations that there was nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited before. He went on to describe, and this is why we have it for posterity's sake, that the Romans left a select portion of the wall and a couple towers, not as a grace, but actually as a boast. He said it was to demonstrate to posterity what kind of city it was, how well fortified which the Roman valor had subdued. This was the end of Jerusalem, 
or this was the end which Jerusalem came to by the madness of those that were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of mighty fame for all mankind. If you go visit Rome today, you'll see the massive Arch of Titus, which commemorates the power of Rome in subduing this Jewish uprising. It's labeled with the spoils of Jerusalem. Rome took great hope. They boasted in the immense power they had in destroying Jerusalem. But Jesus here shows us that this Gentile nation, that all the mighty men of Rome were merely tools in God's hand. The destruction of 70 AD was a display of God's power, not man's power. It was a display of God's kingdom, not Caesar's kingdom. But this trampling of the temple and the subsequent captivity among the nations that Jesus talks about here introduces a new era in redemptive history that Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles in verse 24. And the current war in Gaza that captivates our headlines and our news feeds remind us that we are still in this time, that Jerusalem is trampled underfoot. The geopolitical history of the nation of Israel is always fraught with resistance. But in this area of decentralized physical strength, which is what Jesus had already started doing in tearing apart the scribes, the temple, and Jerusalem itself, during this decentralizing of what is physical, God is redeeming a people of centralized spiritual strength. Those who don't find hope in the rocks of the wall of Jerusalem, but those who find hope in the stone rejected by the Jews, Jesus Christ. Jerusalem might be taken captive by the nations until God so chooses to do otherwise. But the nations in the time being are also being taken captive by the gospel. The gospel is going out and it is saving the lost. Paul puts it this way in Romans eleven twenty five. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so Gentiles, here's your Greek class for the day. In, in Greek, the word Gentile and the word nations, it's just the same word, ethne. That's it. And so to talk about the nations is to talk about the Gentiles. And it's just anybody who is not by, by blood heritage a Jew. It's the rest of us. And God's plan is that in this church age that we looked at last week, a people from the nations will be added to the promise of Israel, not by blood or by physical circumcision, but by the blood of Christ and a circumcised heart of faith in Jesus. Paul says that as the end nears, that many ethnic Jews will be saved. But it won't be because they come back to Jerusalem. It will be because they come back to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Romans eleven twenty three. He says, and even they, speaking about Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. And so that's grafted into to the promise of God, the, the olive tree of God's promise. For God has the power to graft them in again. In this day, as both Jews and Gentiles are brought to God through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says right after this, he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so a pertinent question for us today is, how should you view and pray for Israel in light of everything that's going on? Well, there's two particular ways we should pray. First, we should pray for Israel in the same way we pray for Hamas and for Holland and for Palestine and for Peru we should pray that all would come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
that every lost heart would be redeemed by the gospel that sets prisoners free, that every hand dipped in blood would be representative of a heart washed by the blood of Jesus who takes away our sin. That is the hope that we pray. But we also pray knowing that our promise is a promise that came to us through God's promise to Israel. As Paul says in Romans 9, to them belong the glory, the covenant, the law, and the patriarchs. We are grafted into their promise by faith. And we pray then that they might be grafted back in as well. And so we pray for the salvation of the Jews as we pray for all the other nations, but we also pray knowing and grateful that it was through the Jews that the promise of the Messiah has come to all nations. But it's in this prediction of judgment and salvation that leads to the greater hope when Jesus talks about this second case study. That is the future return of Jesus. Now notice as I read this in verses 25 through 28, notice how the, the, the objects are changing. It's moving from simply talking about this people to all people. It's moving from talking about just Jerusalem, broadly speaking, to the world. So beginning in verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And so you see Jesus, we saw us hinted at again last week, that what was localized is going to be globalized. That right now our era is that of wars and rumors of war happening kind of in various places, intermixed with various times of peace. But there will come a time where again, when you know, you know. How obvious will it be? Well, Jesus describes, just again, look at verses 25 through 27, that there will not be one aspect of our world that is not affected by this day. He says there'll be signs in the celestial bodies over earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. There will be distress on land. There will be geopolitical distress among the nations because of what's going on in the sea. And the waves in the sea will be churned up. And not only nationally will people feel some sort of existential threat, but individually. People will be fainting with fear because of what is coming on the world itself. He goes on to say the very powers of heaven will be shaken. To quote one philosopher in this day, you'll look out and you'll say, we got no food, we got no jobs, and even our pets' heads are falling off. Let the reader understand. Everything will be turned upside down. Everything will be shaken. Because out of the clouds, Christ is coming. To quote another modern Scandinavian philosopher, the sky is awake, so I'm awake. That's the message of this text. One day, the sky will be so awake, it, do, it does you well to be awake in light of that, to prepare for that day. Because how is Jesus returning? Look at the language Jesus uses. With power and great glory. We have such a humanized vision of those words. If I were to you know, introduce some political candidate to come up here and talk, which I wouldn't do. And if I did, find a different church. But say I did that, um, just for the sake of this illustration. Um, I would probably have to introduce him. I'd have to tell you why he's powerful and why he's glorious. 
Because as humans, we need to do that. This power and glory is self-evident. No one needs to be taught it. And this is the beautiful, Luke is a master writer. This has been uh, a beautiful thread he's been painting since chapter 19. And if you have your Bibles open, you could just flip there because there's this wonderful inversion that Luke is doing. In chapter 19, Jesus descends the Mount of Olives and he humble, mounted on a donkey into a city wherein he's going to be misunderstood and rejected, where he encounters first an empty temple and then second an empty, or first an empty Jerusalem and then an empty temple and then a hostile group of religious leaders. But now, after facing their challenges, do you notice what Jesus started to do in chapter 20? If you have a Bible open, he rebukes and predicts the destruction of the religious leaders. He predicts the destruction of the temple. He predicts the desolation of Jerusalem itself. And what does it end with? Not with a king coming down the Mount of Olives, humble and mounted on a donkey, but a king coming from the sky in power and great glory. This king is coming back, not like he came. This king was misunderstood, robed in our own humanity, veiled in divinity. But when he comes back again, the veil is lifted and all will say, here comes the king. Here he is, to their great joy or to their great judgment. One day, no one will misunderstand. One day, the donkey is traded out for a war horse, and the earth will yield her praise. And what do you do with a guy like that? You see, regardless of what your view of Jesus is right now, I promise you it will be too small when that day comes. Jesus will be bigger, better, and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. Therefore, in light of this day, because that sky will be awake, we should be awake. Athanasius, writing much closer to Jesus in the fourth century, reminds even us today, he says, you also will know of his second glorious and truly divine manifestation to us. When he comes no longer in lowliness, but in his own glory, no longer with humility, but in his own magnificence, no longer to suffer, but to bestow thenceforth the fruit of his own cross, no longer judged, but judging all according to what each one has done in the body, whether good or evil. This Jesus is coming back with far more than 76,000 military personnel. He's coming back not to shake the foundations of a temple, but to shake out, as the author of Hebrews says, the foundations of earth itself. He comes with more firepower and more vengeance than any military act of any just war in the history of humanity, but he also comes, dear church, with the promise of greater deliverance. When these things begin to happen, straighten up, raise your head, for your redemption is drawing near. How often is it for us to look out in our own moment of redemptive history? And this is not just a 21st century American problem. Read history. It's every church in every era where the uh, tumult of the day, the political distress, the physical woes begin to cause them fear. But when that happens, it's often easy to spend our times researching rumors 
that results more in well-stocked bunkers than in faithful witness bearing. It's often more apt to cause us to be concerned instead of consecrated, to be worried instead of worshiping, and to be introverted and protective instead of glory proclaiming. But here's how the Christian stays straight. Here's how he raises his head. Fix your eye on the sky. Because that is where our hope is. So when everything else begins to quake down here, we remind ourselves that our hope is coming from up there. And Jesus explains this tension in a short parable, beginning in verse 29, where he says this. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. And as soon as they come out in the leaf, you see for yourselves and you know the summer is already near. So also, that's how you know Jesus didn't live in Montana because we never know when summer's here except when our forest is on fire. Um, So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, the finer detail of Jesus' words here do depend a little bit on interpretation. What do you think he means when he says these things? What do you think he means when he says this generation? By these things, is he talking about Titus's army uh, in Rome that's about to come? Is he talking about those who will witness the second coming when Jesus comes back in power and glory? Or is he talking about this generation, speaking more broadly about this generation of faith? Maybe this generation, like Israel itself, will not ultimately perish. There'll always be that remnant by faith. Or is he talking about just this broader generation that lives between these two events? That is, the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the Son of Man. I personally favor that possibility because it seems to fit most with what Jesus is trying to say here. The main point he's making, again, is clear, isn't it? He says that the world will pass away, but God's people are held tightly inside of God's plan. And God's word is the stable hope for the Christian until all those things pass. Everything you hold dear by worldly standards will pass away, but God's word will not. In other words, we as Christians today, if that is you, we stand in a long line of people who say the end is near. That man might look crazy and homeless sitting on the corner, but that is in fact the witness of the church. Since Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost on the church, Peter opened his message saying that we are in these last days, quoting Joel chapter two, where he speaks of the end of all things. We are always reminded of this. We always not to be surprised when someone comes and says, the end is near. We say, we know we read the book too. We're there. And we must live well in light of this. It's as if the church has been on a long road trip. I just took a road trip with my family the other day. The Lord rewarded us with all of us getting sick. And uh, we, we take this road trip and every time we pass a billboard of interest, our kids say from the back, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Jesus says, almost. We're almost there. He tells us that so we don't mistakenly think that we have arrived. This car with Cheetos and Cheerios welded to our car seats, that this is not the end. That there's something better. There's a greater destination ahead. But he also reminds us this, that we're almost there. That we do not despair or lose hope. That this This too is coming to an end. We are almost there. And 70 AD might seem like a long time ago, 
But 70 AD proves that this God keeps his word, that he is coming back. The day will be, will be there when everything you ever hoped for, even though earth itself will tremble and fall away, everything will be there because Christ is coming. In light of this, Jesus concludes, because he's not just after what we know, he's after how we live in light of what we know. And he prepares us now so that we might respond better in the present in light of what's coming in the future. And this is our closing points today. These are the two commands for faithful endurance. Two commands for faithful endurance. It's natural for many of us to constantly examine the news because we feel like we don't want to be duped. I was just meeting with a sister this week who talked about her anxiety is always peaked because she feels like she has to watch the news in order to know what's going on. That's what the news people conveniently have told her she must watch in order to find peace. And what does it add? It adds anxiety. It adds terror. But we don't want to be duped. We don't want to be caught off guard. We don't want to be led astray. We want to be informed. And maybe you have that same desire that if you don't want to be caught off guard, if you want to be biblical, if you want to endure well, you've got to be wise to what's going on in the world. There's a degree to which that is true. Jesus is calling us to know what's going on in the world. But as a matter of priority, Jesus' concluding commands here show us that if we don't want to be misled, then we should be far more concerned about the false witness of our own hearts than about anything else that's happening in this world. That the greatest threat of leading you astray is not that which is on the outside, but that which is on the inside, our own hearts. While it might be difficult to discern the timelines of Jesus' message here, it's not difficult to discern his commands. And we see the first of his commands where he calls us to be watchful in Luke 21, 34 through 35. Be watchful of yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down by drunkenness or dissipation and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. Dissipation. Uh, We probably know what drunkenness means. Dissipation is just the first century word for literally a hangover. It's how you feel when you've drank too much the night before. And Jesus knows that even for Christians, we might encounter the difficulties of almost there by taking pleasure and peace into our own hands. We feel the tension of distance and the tension of time, and we know that we're not ultimately at rest because our rest comes when Jesus comes. And so what do we do? We try to find that rest. We try to find that disconnect. We try to find that peace by our own hands, in our own world. But this is a false peace. And if left unaddressed, it will expose at the end that your hope is not in the sky. Your hope is not in Christ, but your hope is in the things of this world. And in that day, you'll say, you'll be like a trap. Thinking you were safe, you will be deceived. Now that might be anxiety producing for you, but why does Jesus give this to you? So that you will not be deceived. (laughs) Look at your heart. Watch it. Consider it. Think about it. But notice the experience Jesus gives. Jesus describes a heart that pursues worldly pleasures. And what does he say about it? He says, it is weighed down. He says, it's heavy. Particularly youths, high schoolers, college students, young adults. The world promises levity from your sin, but it only reinforces gravity. The world promises, do this, take this, drink this, engage in that, and you'll have all the joy. Your heart will be free. But that is a heart weighed down. And I encourage you, talk to those people who are in here. This might be a shock to you, but many of us are sinners. (laughs) Many of us have done dumb things. And we can tell you in great sobriety that what lay behind all those things 
is not freedom and joy, but slavery and fear. This waiting period, make no mistake, do not be surprised. It will weigh on you, but slavery to the world's pleasures will not help. And while my hope is that many of us don't struggle with such drunkenness and dissipation, notice how Jesus places, lest we become self-righteous, the cares of this life on the exact same level. Grammatically connected to both of those two issues, While many of us do not turn to things which are overtly dangerous, like drunkenness, how many of us are led to inordinate anxiety about worldly things or inordinate affections for the things of this world? It's easy to discern when we cross the line in terms of alcohol, but it's often a lot harder to discern when we cross the line of false hope with an experience heavy-heartedness at things like our family, things like community, well-budgeted finances, vacations, adventure, money, romance, hobbies, things that aren't overtly sinful, but have the same effect of distracting us and weighing us down. This is really hard to discern. So how do we discern it? Well, in one way, again, if you don't want to be led astray, study God's word. That's the news you need to know. Take the Bible and overlay it on your heart like an x-ray and see where it's in line and out of line. Use that as your standard. This is God's gracious gift to us. Let this help you. You will never be duped if this is your guide. You can never watch another news source your entire life, but you have God's word, and I promise you'll be good. There are Christians in the Congo who are following Jesus well who have never watched Fox or CNN. Can you believe that? That is just astounding, God's meticulous sovereignty. Okay, we need to be reminded of that. But secondly, be mindful that God has given us the grace of the church. And this is where I want to talk to those people who are in their fourth quarter of life. Perhaps you might say, I'm running the two-minute drill. I don't have time, much time left, and you know it. You're perhaps living in light of a greater weight of imminence of the end. Show us what it looks like to live well in light of the end. Show us what it looks like to not be distracted by retreating into peace or comfort, but to dedicate yourself to the things of the Lord. Model for us what it looks like to not let the nearness of death dull our duty or our joy as Christians. Set an example for us that lives under the immediacy of Christ's return so that such awareness creates in us a zeal for holiness and a concern to not die before you die. Culture has no use for those who are in this two-minute drill, but the church has great use. We are to respect them, and they are to teach us. So show us what that looks like, lest we ourselves be led astray. Let's look to one another and look to God's word and spend our time and affections on things which cheer our hearts, and fuel our hopes. Look at how Peter mentions this in 2 Peter 3. How are we to live? Think about if you go to a, a, if you watch this YouTube video that's like the end is coming and there's all these things that you're watching, what's our typical response to that? Well, it's generally uh, followed up by a great, here's a barrel of freeze-dried food. You might be interested in that now. But they're trying to sell you something. We feel a little bit anxious at it, but look at what Paul or Peter says when we start talking about the end. What ought it to produce in us? Look at verse 11. I'm in the wrong spot. Let's go to the right spot. Uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 11. Since all these things, he's talking about the world up above, are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The nearness of eternity leads us to joy in the things of God. And saying, now is the time for holiness. Now is the time for righteousness. 
and to live in light of that. So having been watchful of our hearts, now what we do? We hold up scripture. We look to our older saints. So what do we do now? Well, we stay awake in prayer. Luke 21, 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. I can guarantee you two things if you're committed to being watchful. I can guarantee you that those who do look out into the world will see things that you do not want to see. I can guarantee you to those who look into your heart that you will see things that you do not want to see. So when we pray, we might pray that we endure to see what we want to see. That is to stand before Jesus safe and secure. How often do we pray like this? I ask a lot of rhetorical questions. I mean this one. (laughs) How often do we pray like this? Notice how Jesus is not just praying for our actions that we may have strength to escape all the distractions that accompany and the danger of judgment into damnation. But he also prays for our affections. That he assumes that our ability to have strength to endure is motivated by the desire to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus wants us to pray for strength so that we can get to where you've always wanted to be to the feet of Jesus. The desires of the world will always seem big unless Christ is bigger. The end of the Christian motivates the endurance of the Christian. And Jesus is here assuming that at times you will wrestle to see either one of those in great clarity. So what does he tell you to do? To pray. To go to the Lord and ask for his help. You ask God to give you a vision of Jesus worth escaping to. Theologians have often called the idea of standing before Jesus at the end of all things the beatific vision. When we stand before Jesus, all the fears of this world will melt away. There will be no earthquakes. There will be no famines. There will be no tremors or trials. There will be no caskets or tears. We'll have the final and full rest that we tried to find under every rock and tree here on this earth. And John reminds us of what that day will be like in 1 John 3 where he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That will be someday, church. Amen. On that day when free from sinning, on that day when nothing shakes but the rafters in worship, And what do we do? We hope in him. We always want to get to our action first, but the Bible is after our affections first. John Owen says it this way. He says, in beholding Christ, that beholding of Christ is one of the greatest privileges and advancements that believers are capable of in this world or that which is to come. But he goes on to say, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter who does not in some measure behold it by faith here in this world. In other words, Owen captures the idea of watchfulness and prayer. If we want to endure, if you want to not get caught off guard, if you want to stand before the Son of Man and experience anything other than judgment, if you want to see him with the eyes of happiness instead of the eyes of horror, then we must see him here by faith. That is our prayer. May nothing distract us from that truth. Jerusalem reminds us that judgment comes, but so does the path to Pella. So does the safety of redemption. Jesus is coming, and so will judgment. 
And one day when that comes, there is no more future comment. It is too late. There is no fleeing. There is no running. But as Jesus said earlier, in that day, you can't even go down into your house. It's happened and it's too late. But Jesus makes a way. Jesus is the temple in which we can find refuge that no force of man can ever assail. Jesus is the strong tower which cannot be toppled. Jesus is the true ark of Noah who provides refuge through the waters of judgment, who will reach that golden shore and stand safe before him in his righteousness alone. Jesus is coming, and now is the time to prepare. No one forces anyone into conversion. But God's sovereign control over history forces us into this moment. I didn't put you here. Jesus did. You might boast about what comes tomorrow. You might boast about what happens in an hour. But you are here now so that you might find your refuge in him. So have you come to him? Have you repented of your sins and come to the one who has done everything required to save us from sinners and restore us to God? Come to the one who will endure us through all that will come, the days of hardship and the days of horror, the days of dealing with things in constant fervent prayer, knowing that one day prayer will be no more we will talk to God as we talk to each other in his presence. Come to Jesus. Dear church, let us endure well to that end. Let us throw away everything which threatens that hope and doles us to that end. Let us straighten up. Let us raise our heads because our redemption was drawing near in 70 AD and it is nearer today than it was then. I want to hold out for you the words of the author of Hebrews in closing. Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29. I'm going to read in verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This phrase, yet one more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, That is the things which have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us thus thus offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord, let us offer to you acceptable worship. And Lord, we thank you that there is nothing acceptable in us, but Christ has done that which is acceptable. And so being transformed by his perfections, we who are imperfect cling to him by faith and offer the whole of our lives as acceptable worship. Lord, let us not gaze at the sky and be unconcerned of the hope that it holds, concealed but promised. Let us encourage one another, as the author of Hebrews says, all the more as the day draws near. Even as he connects this gathering that we might not neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another to that end. 
at our table fellowship. Let us enjoy food and be reminded that there is a greater meal yet to come. Lord, I pray you make us watchful of our own hearts and affections. Give us the skill of good friends to lean into the lives of others where we worry they might be taking comfort in the wrong things. Give us the grace to do that well and give us the humility to repent when we do so with falsity or arrogance. But Lord, more than anything, may you endure us to the end. By the power of the Holy Spirit that has called us to you, to the King who will not let anyone snatch us out of his hand, that we might stand safe on the shore and gaze at the beatific vision of Jesus himself. For he alone is our hope. Make us a people who have straightened up, who have raised our heads, because our redemption has drawn near. Amen.